This is your host, Dr. Mesma Shabazz. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Mesma's Roundtable. This afternoon, I have Dr. Tim Aneda George with me, and she and I are going to talk about global leadership and so many other interesting things. I thank you all for always tuning in every other week, and I'm so grateful for your presence in this conversation that we're having. Welcome, my team. Thank you so much, Mensama. It's truly an honor. I'm right here at my heart chakra. So thankful for this opportunity to be with you. Oh, thank you. You and I know each other quite well, I think. And uh, we met about, I want to say around 2004, would it be? I think it was more around 2005 or six. Five or six. Okay. So that was after in California. And that was after, I think we met at a seminar workshop. It was one of the residencies for the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, which is now Sophia University. Right. And any memory you want to share during that uh, visit in California with the group? I think we had a large group of... Yes. That was my first year in the program, and I ended up doing a master's in transpersonal studies there. And frankly, you and the two faculty mentors that I had, and one or two of my cohort mates were still in touch off and on, and I value that time. And I really value their emphasis on experiential learning. And frankly, my first two years there As I looked back, when I reflected on the amount of work that I had done and produced, I was really surprised, Yeah, pleasantly surprised. Well, they they put your feet to the fire a little bit, but it's pleasant. I enjoyed Mm -hmm. really my studies there as well. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened was there were a few folk, either from the African continent or the diaspora, And at the time, as a diasporan, I was living in West Africa. So I was very keen to connect with people from the continent. Yes. And I remember very well, you presented a gift. You gave me a gift when we met. It was a a pink and black outfit with a head. Really? Yes. (laughs) And oh my goodness, I was so deeply touched by that because we had just met brief a few days before that, I think. And you presented this gift to me and I'm still feeling very emotional about it because I was like, oh my God, what did I do to deserve that? So frankly, Mensama, it was your bearing as an African queen. And it was my acknowledgement of that strong vibration, the pride, the grace, the energy, your energy signature said it all, the compassion. And so I just knew this is a sister that I want to honor. And I'm glad that our friendship has been renewed. Yes. And you are a sister that I have always held close to my heart, even when during the periods that we didn't connect directly, but we always pick up from where we left off which I love very much. Now, you mentioned the continent, the motherland, and you've been to Nigeria working there as a diplomat. Could you share an experience you had that stands out to you? 
Well, actually, I would start with my first experience on the African continent, and that was as a student in East Africa. I, um, along with a small cohort of American undergraduates, went to a program that essentially was organized by the American Institute for Foreign Studies, which is actually based in Connecticut. And I think we were a cohort of about nine or 10 undergraduates. For me, it was a dream come true to actually step my foot on African soil. And I remember the courses that I took, the geology and geography of East Africa, African literature, Kiswahili, development economics. It was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Now, the students had to wrest control of the program from the organizers because the individual they selected to lead the program was rather inept. And we knew how much money we had to pay to participate in the program. (laughs) So you couldn't come at us with saying there, there are no resources because it was a rather expensive proposition at the time. Right, right. But I think one, for me, of the most powerful set of experiences was that I was introduced to one of the librarians at the University of Nairobi. Philip was his name. And he kept giving me books. And it just so happened that the novels that he gave me, there were the authors were teaching at the university. So Ngugi Wathiango was the chair of the Faculty of Literature. Okotbi Tech from Uganda was teaching there. And I said to him, how could you understand a Black woman like that? His song of Luwino. And he said, that's my mother's story. David Rubadiri Mm -hmm. from Malawi was there. And I said, I didn't like no bride price. The female protagonist never spoke for herself. (laughs) And in the last few pages, you introduced a coup. And he said, forget about that book. I've forgotten about it. But it was really exciting. I remember Ngugi Wathiango encouraging people to write in indigenous languages and taking theater up country. It was really exciting. That is one of the things that I think started my journey in knowing what the continent brings to our lives, right? All the various, I want to say, not only wisdom, but also the languages and the traditions that permeate every corner of the continent. I started, I think my very first job ever was in the research library on African affairs Mm. right out of high school before I went to college. That was my very first job. And I realized that I could read anything that I, I mean, oh my God, my brain opened up. Here's why. In high school, boarding school, British setup, we weren't even taught about Pan-Africanism and all the various things going on on the continent. I knew British history and Shakespeare, etc., but none of the texts that matter to an African girl, a Ghanaian girl, were included. Right? I could recite Emily Bronte poetry. But then, so what about A.K. Arma? Exactly. I read him in you Kenya. Know? Exactly. And Arma is right in my country. So going to work in that library, and I can connect to your experience as to how valuable and enriching 
that is in our lives to this day because you don't forget that experience. You also mentioned Mensama languages, and that was coming from the United States to be in the company of quote unquote ordinary people. You might start a conversation in English, and then someone would say something in Kiswahili, someone might say something in Luo, French. I mean, it was commonplace to meet folk who were multilingual. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that we have been very effective at doing in this country. We have to do a better job. Of I think so, too, because then yeah. you know, we open up channels to the world. We don't exactly. see things in only worldview, but from other places as, as well. Now, mm-hmm. talking about that, I, I wanted to jump into your global experience some more, but I want to touch on what we've been through in the last year and things are beginning to slowly open up. What perspective, what was your takeaway from that? Well, it's so interesting that at the beginning of the pandemic, before we truly knew what we were going to face, so in early 2020, I had an opportunity to return to Nigeria, Mm -hmm. a country that I love dearly. And so I was there at the beginning of the pandemic on a two-week speaking tour. But one of the gifts that Nigeria gave me to help me to understand and navigate the world is an appreciation for paradox. So I spend the two weeks there. I come back. My husband and I go to see our daughter and grandchildren, that family in Massachusetts. And we aborted the plans when they were asked to leave school. But here's the paradox. A country with incredible material wealth and with an enviable technology platform, a science base with institutions one would believe are prepared to deal with challenges. And we led the world in the transmission of COVID-19 and the deaths that were a consequence of that. I believe part of that problem or challenge was the lack of leadership. At the time, sitting at the top of our political system was a leader that I would describe as the toxic mimic. It was not about understanding or diagnosing the problem and looking for solutions. It was about positioning himself to continue in power. And so because he set out with a different mission and vision, we had more than 500,000 people die. We had our institutions that we used to believe in, like the CDC, botching the testing regime initially. So we weren't testing the way we needed to. And here we have this colorless, odorless virus being transmitted that could be fatal, could be lethal. And it has revealed so many of the fissures in our society. So I'm back to what I learned from Nigeria, which is to develop an appreciation for paradox. Mm -hmm. That even sitting atop the international system, 
with all of our wealth and technological and scientific prowess, we were brought to our knees. It takes me back to Kenya and a scripture verse that I heard from 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let he that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. Well, and the mighty have fallen. And as you articulate this issue that COVID-19 really revealed the weaknesses in this system and the things that we could do better moving forward in taking care of our people across the board. I know sometimes people pitch certain people against each other and saying the poor want this and et cetera. But once you're blessed with things, it has to flow down to others as well. And I think in a system where we have believed for the longest time that we are the best, we are this, we are that, we are the richest, yet most of our people don't get even minimum wage as a consideration to the work they do, that the levels much lower than countries that are less wealthy. Let me put it that way. There are countries out there that don't have the same income or wealth, but pay their workers better than we do. And there is something very wrong with that. Or we have our seniors that have to choose between medicine and food sometimes, but we are the wealthiest nation. Or we have people who don't have medical insurance or can just walk into the hospital to get treatment, but we are the wealthiest nation. And people are going bankrupt. One little thing goes out of their lives, for example, losing a job means you could lose your home. And it is sad, as you said, a paradox, something we need to really learn from, right? But there's also a saying that as you climb the ladder, you go up the ladder, at some point you still have to come down. And because it's not an endless, you still have to come down. So you have to treat everybody you see on your way up better because they are the same people you see on your way down. And I think that is a lesson for this country, for a lot of people to really learn and become familiar with, because I think it really brings us back to our humanity and the things we can do better. I was just reviewing earlier this week the words of Dr. King when he said, We have guided missiles, but misguided men. I could say guided missiles, but misguided leaders. And his critique, I think, is still apropos because in 1967, he talked about the triple threat that we face. And he defined that as poverty, racism, and militarism. So when, for example, President Biden said to the American people, we spent $300 million dollars a day for 20 years in Afghanistan. What do the Afghans have to show for it? What do we have to show for it? $300 million a day for 20 years. It's hard to imagine. And but yet it is true. Are falling apart. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, the paradox, because I would be weaving in and out of the society. And I could see, for example, as I navigated the metro system in Washington, D.C., how many of the escalators failed to work 
And yet we are pouring millions and billions into war enterprises in the Middle East and, and, and Southwest Asia. I mean, these are the things that concern me then and concern me now that there was a time when I thought there was more hope associated with the United States. And now uh, we're seen as the behemoth in, in the room and seem to be subject to that old adage of the law of the instrument. If the only tool in your toolkit that you're using is the hammer, then every problem begins to look like a nail. We have so many tools that we don't need that we could use to make the world a better place. And I think the succeeding generations are now calling for us to use those tools and to contain the profit motive that is destroying our planet. I agree with you completely. I think the younger generation would be challenging us, you know, moving forward in order to rethink our approach to the future. We can talk about the weather, we can talk about politics, we can talk about education and even work, careers as we know it. They're not going to do things the way we were taught to do them. It doesn't work anymore. The infrastructure of all these things are changing, right? And one of the things I notice you do very well as a global leader, and you also are director of the Global Center for Creative Leaders. And you pair up the young, the youth with, for mentoring, et cetera. What makes you do that work? I think for, for years, that's really been my passion. I always tell young people, follow your passion and it will lead to your purpose. And as someone who earlier in life was defined as at risk, as an at risk youth, I recognize the capability and the creativity in our young people. And it's just about helping to build their capacity. I think it was last year I did a presentation at the International Leadership Associations Conference, and I talked about reciprocal mentoring and capacity building. And I started with the story of my grandson, who at age five asked me, Nana, explain the workings of this device. It was an analog clock. Now he's used to digital devices. And so I explained it to him. And then I said, in turn, he's teaching me how to use certain features on my tablet. And together we're studying a video production software that we both have an interest in. And so I talked about the importance of that intergenerational collaboration. And then I looked, for example, at Greta Thunberg, who as a teenager took her very considerable skills and assessed what was happening in the climate crisis. And she not only inspired members of her generational cohort, but she also influenced baby boomers like Jane Fonda who was doing those throwback, I think it was throwback Fridays on Capitol Hill before the pandemic started to protest the U.S. government's inept response to the climate crisis. But there was even more. The students from the shooting in Parkland, Florida, made common cause with young people around the country, 
putting together the March for Our Lives. And we found that Oprah Winfrey invested a half a million dollars in that, as did uh, George Clooney and his wife also gave a half million dollars. So you had millennials and baby boomers, Gen Xers, all supporting Gen Zers. And that's what we're going to need is to work intergenerationally, share our skills, our resources, our knowledge, our critiques, and not only analyze, but then synthesize solutions. So for example, the Sunrise Movement of young people is being mentored by the Sierra Club. And I think these kinds of things happening in civil society bode well for the changes we know we need on our planet. As you say that, then that tells me that is where our hope lies. Mm -hmm. That the older generation and organizations are interacting with the newer coalitions to make things happen. But we can't we can't proceed in the same old way that we've been. That would break the system, I think. Now, would you share some of your experience as a diplomat and a foreign service officer for those who are? Sure. I think it was when I was around 15 that I decided I wanted to become a diplomat. And so I found myself, whenever I was in a career development context, drifting towards information on, I shouldn't say drifting towards, focusing in on information about the Foreign Service. And finally, I took the Foreign Service written exam. I'll never forget it. It was a dark, damp basement of the post office in Yonkers, New York, where I took the exam. And at the time, I wanted to join the U.S. Information Service, or USIS, but they had an additional section of the test for the State Department. So I figured I'll take it on a lark to keep my options open. Well, a couple of years later, the State Department reached out to me. It wasn't until 10 years after I had entered on duty that USIS reached out and said, well, you may be entitled to relief under the women's class action suit if you're not already a foreign service officer. But again, I was already an officer. I joined thinking I was going to spend most of my career in sub-Saharan Africa, but I spent the first half of my career in Latin America trying to figure out why am I not in Africa? (laughs) But I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I served in Mexico twice. I had an opportunity to live and work in the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. I also served in South Africa, briefly in Ethiopia and twice in Nigeria, Yeah, right. in addition to doing short assignments around the globe and also serving in Washington. But I would tell people using the frame that Malcolm X gave us, there's the house and there's the field. I'm sure enough field. We need good folk in the house, but I am not one that has the tolerance for the house for the Washington bureaucracy. But I believe in my own practice, I endeavored to bring some humanity to the equation. I sought to solve problems that were brought to my attention. I sought to treat my host country colleagues and interlocutors with dignity and respect. I found that the more that I traveled, the more that I love our planet, and I found there were places where I was right at home. For example, there's an area of the Dominican Republic known as the Cibao, mm-hmm. and there's a valley there 
And I remember the first time I went into this area, I felt as though I had been there before. I felt very much at home and at peace. There were places in Kenya in the Rift Valley where once again, I felt very much at home and at peace. There were places along the East African coast where once again on the Indian Ocean, where I felt very much at home and at peace. Where I found the problems and the difficulties, they were created by human beings. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I've come to essentially embrace the critique that Greer and Cobb, the two Black psychiatrists who in 1968 wrote Black Rage, they talk about racism as a toxin. I would add homophobia, misogyny, any type of chauvinism. Mm-hmm. to that definition of toxins. Now, if you accept that as an operating premise, then I believe you will accept that we've got a lot of environmental cleanup to do Right. to reimagine our world where justice, dignity, right livelihood, ecologically sustainable systems are widely in evidence and where we eradicate shantytowns and provide, for example, aesthetically pleasing garden and sustainable agriculture. And instead of chasing the almighty dollar, euro, you fill in the blank, Bitcoin, whatever the negotiable instrument, that we really strive to live in harmony with ourselves and and our natural environment. Yes, I agree. Because if we're not in harmony, and I think this is one common theme African societies have moves across the continent. The harmony is what drives everything, right? So if a a community is not harmonious, then it is very difficult to maintain everything else. Health would fall apart, wealth, all the systems that make us really who we are as humans will fall apart. And it's very important. As you are, I want to stay in Nigeria for a little bit. Or even in Africa, because with your travels and interactions, and as you talked about being in places where you felt like you've been there before, right? I had that same experience when I went to, I traveled on the West Coast of Africa from Ghana all the way to Nigeria and back. And it was a road trip. And there was places we stopped. I had the same feeling. And then when I moved to Italy, I had that same feeling like when I went to the forum in Rome. and But there were several other places that I visited that gave me that same feeling of being at home. And it's really beautiful to experience these types of things because it gives us an insight as to being a soul on this planet and having been many places, if I should say that, in many different lifetimes. So... I want to go stay a little bit in Africa because a few of my, not many of my guests have been there. So I want to really shed a little light on where we've been or where I come from and where you see us home as well. Women's stories. Now, women have a different role in the communities in Africa. And there are a lot of powerful stories, but there are also powerful role models and elders that we look up to to really shape our uh, lives. They lead the communities. 
they are the leaders in conflict resolution in different tribal communities, etc. What are your views on that? Something you can share with others that I think will help them. One very powerful leader and story that I would share is the late Jadish Sola Akonde. She was an attorney in Nigeria. And I can remember, I believe it was in 2003, we had invited her to be one of the panelists at a program we were doing as part of our observance of Women's History Month. And when she came, she said, I was late because I've just come back from the market where I was explaining the contours of the ballot for the upcoming presidential election with market women. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of leadership that you're talking about. I can recall that she was one of the conveners of the women who led a protest march in Lagos. There was a flight in December, I think it was also 2003, it crashed at the Port Harcourt International Airport. And with the exception of one woman, an evangelist, all souls on board were lost. But the harm didn't stop there. The international airport did not have a working system to douse the flames. There wasn't water available at an international airport. And in addition to that, children were coming home for the festive season, Christmas holiday, and several children from the Loyola Jesuit Academy outside of Abuja were on that flight and lost their lives. There was one family that lost all three of their children. So this was a deeply wounding experience for the country. And Jaresola Akonde was one of the women who used her convening power to bring women together, to march, to bring public opinion together, to call for change in that sector. Unfortunately, the government then led by Obasanjo, while they had been issued a permit, decided that it was too risky to have these women out there marching and the security forces dealt with them. I thought then that was going to be a tipping point in Nigeria. And on a level, it was because people were no longer content. They were never content, but they would sit in silence. That takes me to the first time I ever met Jaresola Akonde. I was on a, an orientation trip early 1990 or 1991, and I visited Lagos. And she was the head of the Nigerian League of Women Voters. And we had given them a grant. And I was rather critical of the government. I said, this IBB and creating these two parties and all of that. And she looked at me in her wisdom and her practicality. And she said, wherever there is a wedge for the democratic dispensation, I'll find my way in there to create space on the spectrum. So she was taking a long-term view about building the capacity of Nigerians to critique the system and change it at the same time. 
She left us far, far too soon, but her legacy is intact and her commitment to social justice and democratic governance is still intact. Another woman that I would mention, although she was born in Liberia, she naturalized as a Nigerian, is Chief Opal Benson. And you think of any area, whether it's education, the non-governmental sector, business, fashion, you name it, she's involved in it. One of the things that she did was to field a group of women to serve as election observers. And I'm talking about mothers and market women and teachers, people drawn from our communities to develop a sophisticated appreciation for the workings of elections, which are essential. They're not the only component of a democratic dispensation, but they're part of that bedrock of it. So I have a visitor even right now, Professor Stella Williams, not only a marine biologist, but an economist and agronomist, an expert in fisheries and university professor emerita who taught for many years at the university that's now known as Oberfemi Awolowo University, OAU. So the women are powerful. They uh, stand in that leadership to cultivate the next generation. While she's not Nigerian, I remember meeting Grasa Michelle a couple of years ago. And when she addressed the small audience in Washington, D.C., she said, in a few years, you're not going to see me because my business right now is grooming, empowering the next generation of women leaders. And she went on to say that she had used her convening power to bring women farmers, and we know that most of the farmers in Africa are women, and bankers together to forge partnerships, because what we need is capital, access to capital. And those were the kinds of things that she was doing. So this is happening all over the continent, and it's happening all over the planet. I guess I would wrap up by commending the Indian government, because they have a public diplomacy initiative called the Barefoot College, and they are teaching rural grandmothers to become solar engineers. That's abs- and because, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. in how many ways women can play a role to shift the way things are on this planet. And it's time, really, for us mm-hmm. to rise up and do this work, right? In however different ways we can do that. Well, in this case, because of their commitment to educating these rural women, particularly in terms of solar engineering, They're at the cutting edge in digital education. As many of these women don't read in the conventional sense, but they can certainly learn. And so they've got so many digital assets, it's incredible. We visited one of their learning centers in Zimbabwe, and they're doing miraculous work because they get the buy-in of the entire community. And they have a system that is, how do I say it? It's sustainable. It's a way in which we can provide power to rural communities 
and to empower families. And they focus on rural grandmothers because they say grandmothers stay in those communities. Well, so they want to make sure those assets are there. And grandmothers are, I mean, in mo- most indigenous systems, grandmothers are the ones that are driving everything, wisdom, knowledge, teaching, and raising generations of people in, you know, to be morally, et cetera. There's so much we can talk about that. I wish we, time is kind of ticking fast, and I have a few things I want to ask you. So the first thing is your publication, Respect Making Your Mess, Your Message. Can you enlighten us a little bit about it? Sure. I'm hoping that it'll be published soon. But I had the rare opportunity to serve as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Black Studies Research at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And I proposed a research project that I entitled Black Mothers Matter. And I proposed looking at the cold case of a woman I called Jean, which was a pseudonym. But in point of fact, I was an embedded researcher. And I entertained questions that I had held for most of my life. And so respect, making your message, came out of two things. One, an admonition that Robin Roberts' mother had given her to make your mess your message. And that's what encouraged me to explore my mother's unexplained death and mental health challenges. And so I took it upon myself to endeavor to check the records. I was naive enough to think that there was a police report. There was no police report. What I learned was that on November 29th, 1967, my mother went out at about four o'clock in the afternoon to get cigarettes and she never came home. The body of a young woman was found in an alley, unconscious and taken to the hospital. It was three days later that a nurse called the police to say there's an unidentified woman here that the police brought in. No one had even taken the time to check her clothing because her name and her address were in her clothing. But for three days, her family had no idea where she was. She never regained consciousness. But when they held the inquest, they determined that her death suspicious though it was, was undetermined, and no investigation was undertaken. There was a cursory inquiry, but I will tell you, Mansima, one of the things I learned from the inquest was the alley where they found her, there were bricks, and there were bricks that had blood on them. They weren't collected, and no one looked into it. The mess and my message, my mother had for years been in a VA mental institution. She had been released earlier in the summer of 1967. And I remember in the fall, I had one telephone conversation with my mother. I was the youngest of our four. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was the last to speak to her. And I asked, who is this? Knowing it was my mother, but I wanted the person on the other end to say it, to identify herself. And she promised that she was going to come and live with us. We were with our paternal grandparents in New Jersey. She was with her parents in Illinois. And that was not to be. A few weeks later, 
she was dead. And it was a very painful time because earlier that year we had lost our father and he was dead and buried before we knew about it. He died in a car accident in the Netherlands. And it was when they did the death of a U.S. citizen abroad that because he was a veteran, the member of Congress in our congressional district contacted my grandparents. So that was a pivotal year. It was a difficult year. But it was also the year that Aretha Franklin released her song, Respect. And it became an anthem for both women and Black folks. And so that was in part the reason that I chose Respect as the title of this work. And I'm hoping to be able to share it and to publish it and talk about issues of gender-based violence, mental health challenges, the weaknesses in public safety and policing, particularly in Black and Brown communities in this country. But all poor communities are vulnerable Vulnerable, under our current dispensation. Well, so that's a little bit about that. I'm really looking forward to reading that when it comes out. And gratefully, as you mentioned, Aretha Franklin, respect. I saw her perform that live mm. at the Kennedy Center. Uh, oh, wow. During, I think it was Clinton's you know, second inauguration. So that was a memorable experience. Oh, my goodness. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I need to wrap this up. I have a couple more things I want to touch on. And as you talk about motherhood and challenges and the things we go through, is there a pathway we can create our stories? As you just did, you've written this book on respect and talking about the experiences your mother went through and some of the things that are missing in our communities. If someone is listening right now, what would be some of the things, tools they have available to them to also share their stories? Because I believe that it is in sharing that we become aware of what is within our communities and then find the tools to heal them as we talk more about them and to empower us each other in really doing the inner work as well. I agree with you. I believe it it begins from center to circumference. So it is the inner work that we need to do. And the very first thing, as simple as it sounds, is to stay in touch with your breath and to remember to breathe and do the breath work, particularly because of the level of complex problems people, women, families are confronting. You need to be able to stay in touch with your breath, do those breathing exercises. And then I would say that leads into the inner discipline, having a vision. We're back to this whole thing of follow your passion. It will lead to your purpose. So what is the vision that you set for yourself and how much do you invest in that vision? Instead of worrying, do you take the time to really sit with what it is that you want? Have you taken the time to write your ideal scene? Do you look at it on a regular basis of what it is that you want to manifest in your life? These are really very important tools and they don't cost a dime. (laughs) These are the things that you can do for yourself. Open a gratitude journal, write down five things each day that you're thankful for. And especially when you're going through the rough times, 
just might be that you're thankful for the roof over your head. You're thankful that you were able to meet that financial obligation. You're thankful for safe transportation, even the basics, because what we focus on expands in our world. And we'd rather focus on the positive, the empowering. And then I would say, find joy in the little thing. I have a very close relationship with my grandchildren. And I'm working to build their vocabularies, to build their curiosity, to expose them to new and different things, uh, to help them to develop a mindset that doesn't judge or condemn, that questions and seeks to understand. So particularly for those who are parents, I would say that's a very important thing because For example, for me, one of my ministries to my family and friends is the foot massage. I take it back to my grandmother. Whenever my grandmother combed my hair, she was always so gentle. And years later, decades later, I remember her gentle touch. So in the last couple of years, I've started doing foot massages to provide that gentle touch. And my grandchildren, all of them, all four of them, love them. And my friends and family do too. And it's a way of showing that I care, of sharing that very powerful healing touch. And I even have a special mango butter that I'm using now that gives you that aroma therapeutic Mm -hmm. value as well. So there's so many things that you can do that won't put you in the poorhouse that express your love and concern for those around you. The simple things, and and I appreciate you giving people a, a few tools they can use every day. I like the breath as a mantra. Just in and out is a mantra, mm-hmm. it's a prayer, because you connect deeply. But mm-hmm. also doing the simplest things of just having tea, even with folks, or touching, or ways to connect deeply with one another. Is mm-hmm. doesn't cost anything, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just coming from the heart, and exactly. the heart, as it magnifies, also brings in wonderful things in return. Mm-hmm. This is a very deep conversation, and I wish we could go on for a little bit longer. But I want to ask you to close: Who is a woman of power and grace? You would ask me to identify someone that I consider a woman of power and grace. Or the attributes or... Well, almost immediately, Aurelia Erkson Brazil came to mind. She's the subject of my doctoral dissertation. And I saw her as a generative leader. And the qualities and characteristics that came through in the research identify potentiating leadership, leaders who build other leaders, pro-social behavior, behavior that promotes friendship, cohesion, community, strategic vision, having a direction on where you want to go, a commitment to fair play, hearing everyone out before you take a decision or pursue a direction, a concern for the welfare of succeeding generations. These were all qualities and characteristics that I found in full measure. I also found an alchemical quality to her leadership. And by that, I mean, she took the lead of difficult circumstances and turned it into gold. 
for example, when she was our ambassador to Kenya in the early 1990s, when the cartoonists were critical of her, she literally took some of these cartoons, framed them, and hung them in her office to let those cartoonists know that she appreciated their critique of her diplomatic practice. And so she's a woman of power and grace. And actually, we have something that's called Rees Rules. And part of what she says is about how you treat other people with that dignity and respect, regardless of their station or yours. I espouse personal leadership so that we can leverage our dignity and power as women and really make the choices in our lives that will bring joy and abundance and all the things that we want to experience in our lives, right? As an empowered leader, you bring so much to others as well. Reasonably, what age group would you say you work with? Well, right now I'm really engaged with the Alphans. Okay. You know, the really young ones. But my work also involves those who are in adolescence, young professionals. So I'm here as an elder to be of service to my community. Well, I'll end on that note to all elders in all our communities. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And I hope to see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mensima. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Peace and blessings. Many blessings.